think that's it. I know, you can see the clearing kind of behind the tree line. There's a fence over there. So we are standing on the banks of the West Fork of the Stones River in Smyrna. Yes. We're technically in Smyrna right I now. I think so. In Rutherford County. And we're looking north across the river to, I guess, what you could consider to be a ghost town. Yeah, well, or what's left of a ghost town. Right. Yeah, just on the other side of those trees, I mean, I'm sure those trees weren't there at the time. No. Was the town of Jefferson, which we now call Old Jefferson. Yes, um, a town that was taken down when they thought Percy Priest Lake would come this far south. Yeah, when they set up Percy Priest Dam on the Stones River, they thought that the waters of the lake that was going to be created was going to extend much farther than it actually did. And so this little village of Jefferson was torn down, which at one point was kind of a hopping little village. Yeah, it was the county seat of Rutherford County for a long time, starting what, like 1805? I think it was just for a few years before they decided okay. that it was going to be Murfreesboro. Um, but in that one article we read, it said there was a, what, was it a tavern on every street corner? Yes. Which, I mean, from the looks of it, was probably like five street corners. Right. But still, that's a lot of taverns. That's a lot of taverns, <laughs> yeah. And now it's just, we can look across the river and see this kind of tree-covered, what would seem like an island because the river swings mm -hmm. around it, but we know that you can actually get to it by land. We just don't know if you can do it today without trespassing. There appear to be several clearings on the other side of the tree line where probably parts of the old town would sit. It's not a lot, but I think that's old Jefferson right there. I know. It's a nice day. It's sunny. You can hear the bugs and the birds and everything. Yes, it's getting warmer, but it's not hot yet. Let's see if we can get over there. Yeah, let's see. Welcome back to 10 in 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name is Sarah. And my name is Brad. And for this episode, we are going to talk about J. Percy Priest, who was a congressman from Tennessee during and right after World War II. But if you live in Middle Tennessee, there's a good chance you're more familiar with his name in relation to the dam and the lake that are named after him, which we'll talk about that as well. It's the 50th anniversary of the dedication of the dam just a couple of weeks ago. Which we totally knew going into recording this podcast, by the way. Of course, we didn't just find that out like two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was dedicated on June 29th. 1968. And so we're going to begin by talking about who he was, how he gained prominence, and then why the dam was set up and why it was named after him. So to begin, he was born in Theta, Tennessee, which is in Murray County, on April 1st, 1900. His father was a tenant farmer, and in 1916, when he's only 16 years old, he had to quit school to work on his family farm. He moved to Detroit with a time with his brother Sherman, where he saved some money to complete school. He finished college with a degree at the University of Tennessee. But early on in his life, his father, George, and his mother, Harriet, both got pretty sick. And so a lot of his early adulthood, he was the primary breadwinner and primary caregiver for his parents and his two sisters. He provided for them at first as a school teacher in Kolioka, Tennessee, which is also in Murray County. But then he began his career in 1926 as a sports columnist for the Nashville Tennessean. At the time, the Tennessean was published in 
two editions. They had two editions that came out every day, and he worked for the evening edition. And he worked his way all the way up to managing editor of the evening edition. But in 1937, the Tennessean merged with another newspaper called the Nashville Banner, and the evening edition was phased out. So they, they created a new position for him, which was described as a roving reporter position. He had a new column called Places and People. And what he would do is he would drive around the state of Tennessee in his old Plymouth, and he would go to different communities and different community events, and he would write about the things going on in the state of Tennessee. One of my main sources for this podcast is a book called J. Percy Priest and His Amazing Race, which is a biography written by Rebecca Harris-Stubbs, and in it she says that he covered soil erosion, scenic day trips, the village of Bug Tussle, Crimson Clover Festivals, Clay Culturist, the neglect of rural roads, mule festivals, pig iron, state parks, sweet potatoes, Jenny Lynn's piano, Paulus Priest, walking horses, an old-time balloonist, china chickens, glass baskets, battlefields, lifelong bachelors, and football dummies. So he basically... <laughs> Don't really know what that means. I don't necessarily know either. But he'd also write about historical figures like Andrew Jackson, Davy Crockett, Mark Twain, Meriwether Lewis, and Jesse James. It says that he chased down stories while rowing down rivers, wandering lake shores, hiking mountain paths, singing in caves, fishing in national parks, or sitting unobtrusively on courtyard benches. So Brad, what you're basically saying is that he was us 100 years ago. He was kind of the predecessor of 10 and 20. He would he would drive around and write articles that people would read and follow, which I think gave his readers more of an appreciation for their home state or their adopted state, uh, which I think is kind of what we're hoping to do with this podcast. Yeah, give you interesting history, but yeah, connects you to the place that you live. One interesting little anecdote, he was at one point exploring a cave system, which was a popular tourist destination. And while exploring these caves, he started whistling Home on the Range. And he heard from across the cave another tourist whistling along with him. And so they just started whistling and then singing together. And eventually, all the tourists there that day kind of congregated in a massive cavern and started singing together. And they were having so much... He loved singing. They were having so much fun that after singing in the caves for some time, he said... We still wanted to sing, and when Darnell, who had joined the party with a good tenor, suggested his living room, we adjourned to that point where the chorus sat on the floor while Margaret Estes played the piano. So he would just talk about daily life, and he grew very popular because of it. Another thing he would write about was the early implementation of the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was a federally owned corporation and still is, but it was created by Congressional Charter at the beginning of the Great Depression. Its main job was to provide electricity into areas throughout the Tennessee Valley that had not had electricity yet. And it was also in charge of flood control and navigation and land management. But reading his articles is an interesting chronicle of a lot of people's first time getting electricity and how that changed their lives. Uh, he talked about a World War I veteran whose life was changed because he was able to take care of himself better and a family who was having to provide medical care for their son and was much more fit to do this because they had electricity in their home. On September 3rd, 1940, Percy Priest covered a speech from President Roosevelt near the border of Tennessee and North Carolina, and it was in dedication of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. 
this is in the midst of when Hitler and Nazism were coming to power and people around the globe were starting to fear the threat that posed. In this speech, Roosevelt warned of the war in Europe and of the threat of Nazism. And in this speech, Roosevelt said that the greatest attack ever made against freedom was nearer than ever. This speech was clearly an inspiration to Percy. He didn't know this at the time, but he was about to be called out of his peaceful life as a reporter and into the world of politics himself. On June 8th, 1939, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth visited President Roosevelt at the White House. And this was a pretty monumental occasion because it was the first time an English monarch had set foot in the United States. About 700,000 people lined the streets of Washington, D.C. to receive the king and queen. And an afternoon tea was planned so that the congressmen could meet the royal couple. And one of the correspondents from the Tennessean contacted each of Tennessee's representatives to get their impressions of the king and queen. And all came back extremely positive, with the exception of Joseph Burns Jr., Burns was a young representative from Tennessee's 5th District, which includes Davidson County, so that means Nashville, who had taken office in January of that year, so only about six months prior. And he primarily won the election because his father, Joseph Burns Sr., was an extremely popular representative from Tennessee who had held that same seat until his death in 1936. And when Burns Jr. was asked about his impressions of the King and Queen, he allegedly responded with, what a couple of flat tires they turned out to be. I love that. <laughs> That's a great old-timey insult. I know, right? Yes, and he complained that the Queen had wooden gestures and that when she waved, and I quote, she appeared to be conferring a favor on us. When they owe us five and a half billion dollars. <laughs> they asked him if he wore formal clothes to the reception and Burns just responded with, I wore a summer suit I paid twelve fifty four two years ago. <laughs> so clearly he did not put in much effort no. when he was going to meet the king and queen. The Tennessean's offices were flooded with letters from readers. One reader said, we should have a coronation in America. Mr. Burns should be crowned with a tire as flat as he is. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, that's a burn right there. But of course, Burns denied that he ever said this. Of course, because, you know, that's what politicians do. Right. Despite his denials, the damage was done. But still, Burns gets the nomination for the Democratic seat in that next year in August of 1940. And he goes to run for a second term. But winning this time isn't going to be as easy as it was the first time. That left a bad taste in the mouths of his voters in Tennessee. But it's this next event that, that really turned people against him. Yes. A few days after he wins the primary, Joseph Burns comes out in opposition to the conscription bill. Conscription is commonly known as the draft, but it's the process of compulsory enrollment and induction in the military service. So it's the government saying, we're not just going to rely on volunteers for the armed forces. We are going to conscript or force young men to fight or to serve in the military. Going into World War II, the idea of conscription was a big debate. 
because we had just come out of World War I not that long ago. A lot of people were not wanting to get back into a global conflict. But at the same time, there were others who said, look, if this is going to happen or could happen, we should be ready for it and have a strong army. So the debate about conscription was fierce. A majority of Americans, especially the Democrats, favored conscription. They felt like it would leave the country a bit more secure. There were some others, including most Republicans, that denounced it, feeling like that bill committed them to going into war. Burns, remember, is a Democrat, and he decides to go against his own party and side with the Republicans, saying that the act should be delayed. Many Tennesseans, like most Americans, favored and they supported conscription, and they felt that being prepared for war was not the same thing as actually declaring it. One newspaper editorial wondered whether equipping a fire department in a city is designed to cause fires. The point Mr. Burns has missed is that a nation with an inadequate, poorly trained army is at the mercy of bluffers and dictators. It is like refusing to make plans to put out a fire for fear it will incite fires. And many Tennesseans at this point in time in the 5th District began searching for someone new to run against Joseph Burns. There were a few names that were floated around, but the one that picked up the most steam was J. Percy Priest, the roving reporter for the Tennessean who had become beloved by people for telling their stories. A Clarksville newspaper ran a front page story asking to conscript a new candidate, and one of the names that they mentioned was Percy Priest. That same newspaper wrote just a few days later, there is still time to save American democracy, but vigorous action of the people in sending to Congress men who are statesmen rather than political jellyfish is necessary. We are asking Percy Priest to offer himself in the battle to save the nation for democracy. So there's this big push for Percy Priest to run for office, but he was completely unaware of this due to the fact that while this was going on, he was south of Nashville in Pulaski, Tennessee, covering a dairy festival. Of course, because, you know, when important political things are going on, you need to, you know, count your cows. <laughs> he was doing his job. You know, he was doing his job as a reporter. That's what made him famous. When he gets back and he finds out, he reads the front covers of newspapers with him on it, he had to put quite a bit of thought into running for office. Now, it was something that he had expressed interest in before, but the issue was he was the sole provider for his family, he had a pretty good job at the moment, but campaigning for office would involve him quitting his job at the Tennessean. He also didn't have any personal problems with Representative Burns, but he disagreed with his stance on conscription, and he felt like the United States should be prepared for war if war was coming. The other issues with war running against Burns was that Burns was an incumbent, which means he had already won. Usually incumbents win in re-election. So Burns had that going for him, but he also had name power because of his father, and he had money, which were things that Percy Priest didn't have. But potentially the most difficult hurdle that Priest would have to get across if he were to run is that whoever ran against Burns would have to run as an independent because Burns had already secured the Democratic nomination. Priest couldn't run as a Republican because Republicans didn't historically win in that district of Tennessee. Burns was already the Democratic nominee, so Priest would have to run essentially as a third-party independent candidate. All things that went against him. 
he thought about it for a few days. And after consulting with friends and family, after talking to his preacher, Percy held a press conference on September 9th, 1940. And in this press conference, he officially resigned his position with the Tennessean and said, People know me in this district and will never question my loyalty to President Roosevelt, nor to the principles of the Democratic Party. It is because they have been trampled mercilessly by the man who asked and received his nomination on a pretense that they also were a part of him, and because other loyal men and women over the district have asked it, that I enter this race. I do so now with a determination born of a deep-rooted sense of duty. I shall think, work, and pray for the interests of America and for the preservation of democracy. These are the paramount issues and all others are secondary. He began his political campaign using one room of the Andrew Jackson Hotel in downtown Nashville. He and a crew of volunteers had a single desk, a chair, a telephone, and a very tight budget. In his first campaign speech, Percy argued for the importance of creating a strong defense. He said, To stand on the sidelines and speak of hysteria smacks of appeasement. Now is no time to carry umbrellas to Munich. We must throw them in the alley, roll up our sleeves, and go to work on the job of becoming defensively strong. Percy Priest's campaign gained significant momentum over the next months, and on October 15th, Representative Burns decided to return to Tennessee from Washington for the first time in this campaign in order to make speeches of his own. There really wasn't much, though, that Burns could use against Percy Priest. One of the only things he was able to use as a weapon against him was that Percy Priest was ineligible to vote. Because in 1889, Tennessee implemented a pool tax, which stated that each year Tennesseans had to register to vote and pay a tax. This was originally intended as a way to limit black citizens from voting because many of them couldn't afford that pool tax, and it remained until 1953. The reason that ended up coming into play in this story is because Percy was constantly campaigning and had spent the last day of voter registration in Sumner County with the intention of driving back home to pay his poll tax right before it closed and register to vote. But his car broke down on the way home and he missed the deadline. This was really the only thing that Burns was able to use against him. In one speech on October 25th in Hartsville, Tennessee, Burns said, I have been a Democrat all the years of my life, and I have actively supported the Democratic nominee on the stump and at the ballot box in times when it was not the popular or expedient thing to do. My independent opponent is attempting to tell the people how to vote when he cannot vote himself. Public opinion was split between the candidates, and there was really no clear winner going towards Election Day. And so an organization was put together called Friends of Priest, and it was made up of individuals primarily outside of the 5th District. And one of the things they did is they sent a herd of miniature mules. Is that called a herd? Or a pack? A pack? Flock? A group? A group. A few. We'll say they sent a few miniature mules to the Priest campaign headquarters, which these mules were then draped with political ads and they were used as moving billboards in Priest's favor. So you'd, ha- you'd see these little mules walking around downtown Nashville with ads for Percy Priest on them. The vote was held on November 5th, 1940. Tennesseans in the 5th District voted Percy Priest into office as their representative. He defeated Burns by 3,500 votes. We're going to pause now, Percy Priest's story, and we're going to throw it back to our adventure 
trying to find the lost village of Old Jefferson. Okay, we find a trail. We don't know where it leads or how far it leads. But we're walking it. We're walking it. We're walking through spider webs. But why spider webs? Yeah. We think there should be a part up here where we can hopefully walk around the the river. I don't know. Walk around the bend, but we'll see. So you're saying that there was a town that was I set to be, so. uh, that was actually destroyed and was flooded? It's hard to say because I, because like I've seen where it was located and it's in the middle of Rusty Creek. Lake it appears, but I had it and there's like the Couchville area and there's the Couchville Recreation Center. The town was called Couchville? Couchville, yeah, but I haven't been able to find like stuff on it like you can find stuff on Old Jefferson. So it's weird. Maybe that town was already gone. Already gone. I mean, that would make sense. Well, you know, driving down the ramp to get here, there was a couch on the side of the road. I know, I saw that as well. So was that Couchville? Probably. <laughs> Percy Priest's career in office was very much defined by the eras that he lived through. The early part of his political career was tied strongly to World War II. He was a Democrat at heart. He was a supporter of the Roosevelt administration. He favored conscription. He favored maintaining a strong military. And he wanted to provide the best care and protection for servicemen, especially those overseas, and for wounded veterans. This was something that was close to his heart because his brother had been severely wounded in World War I. Another interesting thing is that before he was ever voted in, he had begun courting a young woman whose name was Mildred Noland. Their relationship began in 1937. Percy was such a hard worker that their relationship was pretty quiet. There would be interviews where they would ask him if he was ever going to get married, and he would say he didn't know for sure, even when these two were engaged. Uh, they were married in February of 1947 after courting for over a decade. He was very strongly tied to his constituents, the people who had voted him in. He replied to every letter written to him. On top of that, he didn't have an unlisted telephone number, so people could just look him up and call him, and people would reach out to him constantly. He would do his best to correspond with them. In 1948, he was named the House Majority Whip for the Democratic Party. The whip is the person responsible for ensuring party discipline making sure that all party members vote according to party policy so there aren't any surprises. Percy said that he tried to get fellow party members to vote according to party lines, but he did it based on explanation rather than on force or pressure. But this would become very difficult very quickly because of the next era in which he was in office. That same year that he was named House Majority Whip, President Truman who had taken over after Roosevelt, pushed for civil rights for African Americans. He actually campaigned that that would be part of the Democratic platform, which this led to a huge division in the Democratic Party. The same year Percy entered his role as whip, the party split, and 35 Southern delegates, led by a South Carolina senator named Strom Thurmond, broke away to form a new party, which they called the States' Rights Democratic Party, which is commonly referred to as the Dixiecrats. 
Thurman ran unsuccessfully for president in 1948 on a strong pro-segregation platform. He was hoping to overthrow Truman as the party's candidate. And this gets into the topic of Percy Priest's own views on race. He spoke frequently throughout his career on the basic rights of all individuals. And he had received support from various African-American groups throughout his political career. He opposed the poll tax in Tennessee, which might have personal reasons since that was almost the reason he lost his first election. But he also seemed to oppose it because he felt like it was a way of keeping poor African-Americans from voting. He did, though, oppose Truman's civil rights legislation, but he said he felt that it should have been left up to the states. And in 1956, Percy Priest took what may be his biggest stand on the debate between racial segregation and integration by refusing to sign a document called the Southern Manifesto. The Southern Manifesto, or its official title, the Declaration of Constitutional Principles, was written in 1956 in a direct response to the Supreme Court ruling Brown v. Board of Education that declared that school segregation was unconstitutional. The creation of the manifesto was led by Strom Thurmond, and it promised to use all lawful means to bring about a reversal of this decision, which is contrary to the Constitution, and to prevent the use of force in its implementation. It was signed by 101 Southern congressmen, including people from Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Virginia. There was intense pressure for Southern politicians to sign their names to the Southern Manifesto. A lot of constituents said that they would refuse to support a candidate if they didn't sign. Percy refused to sign. He believed that once the Supreme Court had ruled, that that ruling was final. Percy served as a representative from Tennessee from 1940 until 1956. He was elected eight times and he was nominated for a ninth. One of the things that he pushed for in the latter part of his career was the creation of power-generating dams along the Cumberland River. He wanted this for multiple reasons. He thought the power generated from them would increase the country's readiness for war, but he also believed that a dam was necessary to control flooding that affected the homes and farmlands in Middle Tennessee. He also thought it would provide an ideal location for boating, fishing, and wildlife. At the urging of Percy Priest, in 1946, the construction of a dam along the Stones River was authorized. And it was originally to be called the Stewart's Ferry Reservoir. But the project had to undergo many challenges before construction could begin. And by 1956, construction had still not begun. But in October of 1956... Percy Priest was hospitalized due to an ulcer. He had dealt with ulcers for the majority of his adult life. After being in the hospital for a time, he was at first declared to be in good condition. But complications arose, and on October 12, 1956, Percy Priest passed away at 56 years old. In the House of Representatives the next January, they eulogized Percy Priest, a man named Joe Evans, who was a friend and fellow congressman, said, While we, his friends, are saddened by his passing, our sadness may be lightened by happy reflections of his many achievements and accomplishments, of trust and confidence kept, deeds of unselfish public service and consecrated devotion to high ideals and statesmanship. 
Percy Priest fought for a better America, never pausing to rest upon past laurels. J. Percy Priest, though, never got to see his goal of creating the dam and the lake system completed. In 1958, it seemed as if the plans to construct the dam would be delayed indefinitely. And at that point in time, too, it was suggested that the name be changed in honor of the deceased congressman who had worked so hard to see it completed. It took another five years after that. But in 1963, construction of the J. Percy Priest Dam on the Stones River was started by the United States Corps of Engineers. Part of the reason why the Dam of the Lake took so long to be completed is because a lot of work had to be done to prepare that area that would become Percy Priest Lake. 28 miles of road had to be rerouted. 95 cemeteries were moved. Most of them were little family graveyards, but that still equals about 1,600 graves. Some people were never moved. They did contact family members, and there were some families that insisted that their relatives be left where they are. The lake touches three separate counties, Rutherford, Davison, and Wilson. It's about 42 miles long and 14,200 acres. So when I was in college, I would periodically go cliff jumping at Percy Priest Lake, and I had heard a rumor that there was a town underneath what would become the lake, that they had to flood the town and the town was still there. And as you've heard periodically throughout this podcast, Sarah and I went on an expedition to figure out what could be found out about this town. There was one. It was called Old Jefferson. It was torn down. The people were forced to move. But that area was never actually covered by the waters of the Percy Priest Lake. The dam and the lake were completed in 1968. And on June 29th of that year, President Lyndon B. Johnson dedicated the dam. And Johnson said, the project we are dedicating has many purposes. It will protect your homes and your families against the ravages of flood. It will provide the additional electrical power that the growing historic city of Nashville needs in order to prosper and to attract new industries. It will store water for periods of drought. But most important, to me at least, it will create a beautiful new recreation area within 10 miles of the very center of this historic city of Nashville. It is a perfect example of the new construction. 18,000 acres of unspoiled nature with an easy driving distance of a half a million people for boating, camping, hiking, and swimming. There's one last chapter of the story before we get back to our adventure trying to find Old Jefferson. On November 21st, 1979, there was a bomb placed on the Percy Priest Dam with the intention of blowing up part of it which would flood part of downtown Nashville. Mm-hmm. That was their plan. Their plan was to flood Nashville and then with scuba gear, swim into the city, looting buildings, and then swim away while everybody was too concerned with patching up the, the hole on the dam. Of course, this didn't work. They said that it was poor planning because it only caused about $10,000 worth of damage, but that even if it did work, the area they were hoping to flood wouldn't have been flooded anyway. Yeah. And I don't think they considered that what they were wanting to steal would have probably been wet. Yes. So we're going to we're going to finish this episode with the exciting conclusion of our search for the lost village of Old Jefferson. Thank you so much for listening. As always, follow us on Instagram at boft1864. BOFT1864 to see some pictures associated with this week's episode. And if you want to reach out to us, if you have a question or if there's a topic, if there's an idea that you have of something that Sarah and I should talk about, you can email us. My email address is just brad at boft.org. And mine is Sarah with an H 
at boft.org too. And if you want to support this podcast and at the same time add some books to your library. Or other merchandise. Or other merchandise, clothes, housewares. We have a coupon code. If you go to our online store, which is store.boft.org, after you've made your purchases at checkout, use the coupon code PODCAST18, so all lowercase PODCAST18, you can receive 10% off your order. That's good from now until the end of August. And as always, we encourage you folks to support your local history by coming out and taking a tour of either or both Carter House and Carnton. You may very well get one of us as a guide. Thank you for listening. So we were unable to find a way (laughs) to get to Old Jefferson by foot. Um, At least from this side of the river. At least from this side. But uh, we tried. So in our research about Percy Priest Lake we found that there was a guy named Uriah Moreland. Yes, and his wife, Abigail. And his wife, Abigail, who their home was set to be flooded uh, when the lake was formed. And when they went to go get them off the property, they found the bodies of Abigail. Their children. And their children, but no Uriah. And Uriah was never found. It was said he practiced some black magic. Uh, or maybe dabbled in... The dark arts. The dark arts, yes. That sounds like we're in Harry Potter. <laughs> but not to ruin the story entirely, we asked our staff genealogist, Christy, to find what she could about Uriah and Abigail Moreland. And the sad news is no person by the name of Uriah or Abigail Moreland has ever lived in Tennessee. So, <laughs> so that rumor is sadly squashed. But... I did find out that there was at least one casualty of the flooding. Of oh, who was that? Not who, but what. What was that? It was a species of mollusk. Yes, <laughs> that so was, sad. That was uh, only, like, its last known uh, culture of them was was in the area of the Stones River, and they were flooded. I don't know how you flood a mollusk. Well, I think they need to be in, like, maybe it's like a fresh water. They had to be, like, in a flowing water or something, so when... Right. And so they went extinct, unfortunately, because of the creation of Percy Priest Lake. So... That is... I think that concludes our adventure. Yes, probably. We should probably figure out a way to get back to our cars. I think they're that way, right? Yes, should we. Head on! (laughs) Sure.